1: Hello and welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast, a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to make them, how to get them made and how. To try not to what, Robbie? To F it up, Giles. In our very own opinion. (sighs) Obviously you can hear I am with the wonderful Robbie
0: McCain. Hello, mate. Hello, Giles. How's it going? Very good. What are we talking about in this week's podcast? Well, there's this guy, Mike Atkinson. Yeah. And I'm just looking at the notes you've made for the interview. It seems a bit strange. I mean, he's a helicopter pilot, expert on the outback, apparently made his own film, used solar panels to power all the stuff, walked across the Australian bush. This doesn't sound like a real person, Giles, Have you just made this person up.
1: It sounds like I've made this person up, but this is my Atkinson. He has done all those things, and he did make a film all on his own with no crew and it's an incredible story of what he's done and he did it by listening to podcasts like this and watching youtube videos and learning how to be a filmmaker learning how to edit his film and get it out there
0: he had no knowledge beforehand, prior to
1: no, not really. Right. A photographer and I'll yeah. tell you the story in the podcast today. <laughs> you will hear it's it coming up. What a great guy! What, what an inspiration for any filmmakers out there.
0: The genuine bush tucker man.
1: He's a genuine bush tucker man. He eats from the ground. He survived. He survived for thirty days,
0: avoiding crocodiles. Yeah. Uh,
1: what did he eat, Robbie? What have I written down that yet? Dog balls. Correct. <laughs> Find out. What he didn't tell me what they taste like, which is a real shame. But you do see it in the film, and the film is available now. It's outback. It's called Surviving the Outback, and it is available. Um, so that's what we talk about, Robbie. Where am I going though?
0: Where are you going? Where, <gasps> Where are you going? going? You're going to wonderful Miami, isn't that right? <laughs> For I am, the Dare I am. World Premiere. Yes, babies. <laughs> For those
1: of you who've been on this journey with me for this time, this whole podcast time finally. well, it's not getting released yet. <laughs> you have to wait for that, but it's actually doing it's, it's film. being seen. It's, it's
0: being seen seen by an adoring audience. Well, let's hope so.
1: <laughs> I am actually a little bit nervous about it to be honest because it's the first time people are seeing it who aren't in my circle and that's scary. It's scary. You these, nervous? Yes, yeah these are horror yeah. fans. These are yeah. people who like and care about horror. And I'm trying to give him a horror film and go, please like it. Mm. Hope it's nice. Not a crowd you want to uh, piss off or annoy, really. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I'm going there on Thursday with Bart Edwards, my lead, and my co-writer, Johnny Grant. And we might do a live episode. What else have I got to do? Raindance? Yes, Raindance shout out. You can get in free uh, to their next Taster Day. It's Saturday the 31st of August at 11am. And you can go there for their filmmaking course workshop about directing, screenwriting, producing and getting valuable knowledge about the industry getting tips and tricks to break in it's brilliant it's rain dance have
0: you been one of those workshops giles i have
1: that, yeah. i have and it was fantastic to be honest they should let me teach don't you know I mean i'm not <laughs> i'm not knowledgeable and full of tips and tricks rain but dance.
0: go anyway listening go anyway Apply. yeah
1: get free tickets the uh the code is open podcast 19 all the links
0: are in the show notes. thank you robbie all the notes are in the all
1: the what, what's happened to my brain
0: use your words <laughs> all the links are in the show notes people
1: yes talking of which the make your film event is on September the 3rd Mm. myself Dom Lenoir, and Robbie will be there our special guest is already announced Anthony Woodley who made the brilliant film The Flood with Lena Hedy so come join us September the 3rd tickets are available now and there's still some early
0: bird tickets left get them quick part 5 part 5 make your
1: film we'll see you there
0: if you've been to any of the others you know how good it is if you haven't highly recommend. Always a great panel, some great knowledge on display. Yeah, you won't regret it.
1: And I, as I always say, it's so important to come and mingle and network. There's a Q and a Get yourself there. Robbie's already met one of his. Well, what did you meet? Your screenwriter? Screenwriter,
0: yeah. Joe Andrew. And i met lots of actors. Yeah. Yeah, producers. It's great. So you met at the Make Your Film
1: event and you can do that too. I know that Sarah Thomas and Will Kenning are hooking up because of that event as well and because of the podcast. So get out there and get yourself networking and making your films because that's what it's all about. It's called Make Your Film, people. And also...
0: Screencraft
1: screencraft have just announced their brand new action and adventure screenplay competition so if you have an action and adventure screenplay get it into screencraft now august the 1st it is just open for the early bird deadline get in there get involved because they have an amazing panel of people who do look at your scripts and really help you to get your film made there's been so many success stories and there's some big people who will read your script so get involved screencraft action adventure if if you have that screenplay and it is the best it can be then get in touch now all the links are in the show notes aren't they robbie they are a few shout outs this week go to the james hughes thank you james as always Corey marvin sarah thomas diane knight rock fight films and matt and tory butler hearts the film the isle It's available everywhere around the world. Go get it. Is it around the world? I don't know. But it's most places where you're listening to this podcast. So get on it and do it. Um, Mm. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for listening. If you've been listening for a while, do give us a nice review. Why not go on to Apple Podcasts and do that for us? And if you like this, spread the word. Tell your friends. Should we get on to today's podcast? Yeah. with, With the fantastic Outback Mike.
0: All the amazing stories he has to offer.
1: This is how Mike managed to make a feature all by himself. In the outback, it's amazing. You will be inspired to go out and make your film. Enjoy. It is my absolute delight, and I can't believe I've got you on. It is Outback Mike, otherwise known as Michael Atkinson. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks. Yeah, really good. I mean, obviously, we can tell from your voice straight away uh, that you are not English or American.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, some, yeah, you some have, might call it a speech impediment. I have to uh, speak slowly in certain places where I am around the world. So I actually just got funny. back to Australia right now. And it's nice being able to speak normally and people understand.
1: I love the accent. It sounds beautiful to me. Um, we've had a couple of Australians on the Filmmakers podcast and it, they've always done really well, the episodes. So when I heard that you wanted to come on and that you were potentially a fan of the show from what I hear. Yes, um, that's right. I right. was like, well, yeah, why would I? Why would I not? Cause your story is amazing and, and fascinating. And I was like, yeah, let's do that. So let's talk a little bit about you, your background, your filming, why you came up with the surviving the Outback idea in the first place. Because it's kind of crazy. You know, one person going out into the middle of the bush and having just yourself, no film crew, no survivor, and still making a brilliant film because that is tough as shit. Tough as old boots to do it. And you've, you've managed to create a really wonderful film. Thank you. Um, which uh, as far as i know is out now everywhere is that correct yeah
2: yeah it's um being distributed by gravitas ventures so it's on itunes google play uh dvd amazon
1: all those different things yeah perfect now i suggest you do go watch this film certainly watch the trailer and realize what mike's gone through and after you've listened to this Go watch this amazing film. It's just so beautiful to see all the landscapes, to see how you did it. So let's go from the top. Because you were Army Chopper pilot, right? And survival instructor. How did that even start? And how did you move that into filmmaking in the first place?
2: Yeah, well, it actually goes back to when I was a kid. I, I watched Top yeah. Gun and wanted to be a pilot. And there's <laughs> this guy called. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I love plenty it. of kids watch that and want to be pilots. Yeah. I was always into camping and I saw a documentary about these aviators. Uh, that I made the film about in the end when I was a kid as well and I always thought yeah I'd love to make a film about that because there's this guy called the Bush Tucker Man um who's actually popular in the UK I think and he's this army guy that goes around showing how you can eat food in the bush so those two things I they were the two goals that I wanted to sort of do in life and I've been prioritizing the flying goal up until now and I'm now just moving into the filming goal so I always wanted to make films about survival. So when I was doing the piloting stuff, I was just taking every opportunity I could to learn about survival, do courses, become a survival instructor. And uh, also keeping that in mind, I did a lot of photography and filming of other adventures, just knowing that that would come in handy one day. And then really the last 10 years I've knuckled down and put time into the filmmaking and uh, done my first film, whilst I'm still a full-time pilot right now, but I'm going to leave at the end of the year and make films full time I just wanted to sort of go from one place of financial stability
1: before stepping out into the unknown if you know what I mean (laughs) yeah into one that isn't (laughs) 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 yeah Um, that's amazing it's really interesting your journey because unlike a lot of people you started filmmaking later in life I suppose and uh, your passion came from different sides of it which meant you know, you were like, well, if I film this, it's gonna be better, it's gonna be really cool. How did you even learn to know how to, you know, take photos, to learn how to film in the first place and make really nice shots? Was it trial and error?
2: Uh, It was, I was always into adventures and anyone that's into the outdoors always wants to try and capture it. So I was always into taking photos as a kid as well. And then knowing that I'd make the films, I tried to video what I could. And when I was a chopper pilot, I did a fair bit of videoing as part of my job as a reconnaissance pilot, and I used to also make videos for the squadron on operations where I'd you know film all the, the cool sights of things, and make videos for guys to take home. And so I started to learn about what looks good from an aerial shot perspective and what doesn't look good. So a lot of it was what what doesn't look good and knowing how to avoid that. Uh, so that that development was was pretty important. And then initially I pitched the idea to networks. Uh, that I would have a sort of film crew along because I didn't know Mm -hmm. how to make my own films. And whilst it got a lot of positive response and I had a production company take me on and the network's making a lot of really positive noises, no one ever actually signed on the the dotted line. Right. And I thought, oh, well, the, the second plan of attack is to just learn how to do all this stuff myself. So I've really spent 10 years learning all the different ways of doing it. And I I wouldn't have waited a full 10 years. It was just that I had some other opportunities come up in flying that I couldn't pass up. Um, But now I feel like I've got as much as as I can out of those opportunities, so I just went hardcore into going and making the first film. So really it was my film school making this film. Yeah. And so I didn't expect to make anything out of it. In fact, I didn't even know what would be the end result. I thought I might make a six-part, like 10 minutes mini-episodes for YouTube when I finished. But when I got back, the footage was, I showed it to some people and they said, oh, you know, you really, you can make a lot more out of this than just something on YouTube. And so it turned into a film. Uh,
1: And I didn't really think about what the definition of a film would be, but it's it's turned out into a a film. That's incredible. So you set out on this adventure. And so everyone knows what this adventure is. There was two um, stranded German aviators in 1932, who had to use their skills of survival, and they came across some Aboriginals who did uh, eventually rescue them. Do you want to just pitch that real quick, because it would be much better than mine, of what that that, story is? Yeah, they were were Germans. They were flying from Germany to China via
2: Australia to promote this seaplane um, for business purposes. And on this last leg um, from Indonesia to Australia, a, a journalist suggested it would make a better story for him if they could do it at night. And because they were promoting a plane, they sort of caved into the peer pressure and thought, yeah, that's a good idea. And it resulted in them getting wildly lost and thinking they were, you know, 500 kilometres from where they really were. And they ended up thinking they were in the wrong spot. And over sort of six or seven weeks, tried all these different ways of surviving their own way out because they didn't think anyone would be looking. Well, I don't know, just no one came looking for them because they were all searching in the wrong spot. And they ended up, thinking they were going to die. They, they made a raft out of one of their floats and everything and they thought they were going to not live another day and then they that's when they were rescued by Aboriginal people. So it's an amazing story and the pilot wrote a book about it. So there's a record of everything they had and all the things that they went through. So when I was researching a historical topic to, to base my first film on, I looked at a whole bunch of stuff but I this was always the first one and I saw a documentary about it when I was a kid. When I was nine, my parents were watching it and I asked a question about it so I always had that in my mind and so I I put myself in the the same situation with the same materials that the guy listed that he had in his book and instead of having a seaplane to make a raft out of I just made my own floats out of 44 gallon drums and I didn't want to copy what they did I just wanted to see if I could use my skills to see if I could get out and yes it's unfair because you know I grew up in Australia and I've got heaps of experience in the bush and they were from Germany and never been to Australia so I'm not Trying to poo-poo what they did because they did an awesome job. I just wanted to see if I could do it and get out without requiring a rescue. And then obviously to try and film that, figure out what I needed to do to bring in film and create it all.
1: It's a really fascinating story because the fact is you said, like you said, you really like this story. You were like, look, I want to recreate that. But then the other side of that is you want to film it at the same time and go out and make a feature film on your own. Uh, and one that could stand up and like you say you didn't really know what it was going to be which i find fascinating i find the fact that you went out there and went oh i'm just going to shoot this there must have been moments when you thought oh, do you know what i'm gonna i'm really struggling to eat here i'm really struggling to drink any water between that the the big long treks you had to do across the plains um you must have thought do you know what do i really need to put that drone up in the air and capture this moment oh yeah because yeah. I'm i'm thirsty but yet you still did you did it Every time, and it's a brilliant effect. I mean, those shots you've got are gorgeous. You know, there's no, there's no sort of half-assed messing around. You've got some brilliant footage. I'm like, how how did you do that on your own and keep saying and keep going and talk us through it? I had to
2: um, divorce the side of my brain that gave in to discomfort. So I was obviously very tired and fatigued from the survival aspect and then all you want to do is just sit there and lie down. And because I've done a fair bit of those kinds of things, I knew what, what my frame of mind would be, but I just put so much effort and expense and risk into doing the expedition anyway, I thought I can't get to the end of this and go, oh, I really must have done this. I, ha- I had to have got up before sunrise. I should have put the effort in. So I just didn't allow myself any break at all for the whole trip. And um, so next time I do do one of these trips, which I'm certainly planning on doing, I've just got to maintain that that rage, you know, inside your head that uh, you just got to keep
1: keep going. The rage inside your head are like that. Keep the rage, <laughs> yeah. keep it going. How many days were you out there? Uh, it was about thirty Total. All up, it's yeah. thirty days, right? So that's so our audience knows. Thirty days, you on your own in the outback, filming and trying to survive and trying to get to the places where you needed to get to when I I think a lot of times you hadn't been to any of these places before Uh, am I right most Uh, places that's right yeah I had been to
2: the Kimberley area but a lot of the places I went to on this I hadn't been to so and also it's not scripted so I didn't know exactly where I was going to be so that was also difficult quite a challenge to know how I might film it because I didn't know what was going to be important and what things I needed coverage of. And that term coverage, I only discovered the other day, but because I listened to podcasts, that's how I learned a lot about how other people made films and, they they would say terms that I didn't know what it, what it was and I'd go and Google it and find out what it was. So obviously coverage, as I've since discovered, is is when you want to edit something later, you you want to have it covered from a bunch of different angles. So I didn't know what would be important. So for example, when I made the the rafts, after welding them all together, I discovered all this rust and one of them was falling apart. So you spend a lot of time filming that and because that might be critical later and it might be the crux of the story and why I ended up sinking. But nothing yes, happened. Yeah. So... You know, and sometimes I'd, I'd be out in the bush and I'd come across a certain piece of bush tucker or bush food and I'd spend a whole bunch of, you know, a couple of hours filming different, you know, and establishing shot, close-up shots and whatever, and then I'd finish all that and I'd walk another kilometre and find a much better example in a far more beautiful place and have to repeat the whole process again. <laughs> so you constantly mm. just, you can't relax because if you walk past something, it might be the only time you see it and it, it might be critical later on. So I had lots of footage at the end of it which took a long time to get through and really nut out what the story would be uh, yeah, at the end. I,
1: yeah, I can imagine. So just jumping back slightly, just so you, you listen to our podcast, as far as I am aware, and yeah. you heard terms and you heard things and went, okay, I'm going to Google that now, work out what it is and then go, all oh, right, okay, so that's coverage or that's a wide or you need to do it from this angle or that angle or uh, <laughs> in the edit, you have to do it this way. And then you said right i'm just gonna go do
2: it yeah yeah well i was just adding to a bank of information that was being stored in my head so i was listening to about four different podcasts i was obviously youtubing and doing heaps of research on the internet of course yeah and yeah different different terms had come up and there's obviously so many terms it's a different language but when the same mm-hmm. term comes up over and over again you start to get stuck in your brain you go and research it and you find out um you know what's important and and what's not?
1: And I love the fact that no one told you've done this on your own. You went out and listened to podcasts. You went out and watched YouTube videos on your own, and then went, "All right, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to. I've got my equipment. Did you buy that? I take it you you yes. went out yeah, bought so I bought everything. Drones. So everything
2: was um, self-funded. So I'll probably end up spending about thirty-five thousand on you know most. It's mostly on logistics. Probably ten to fifteen. Probably fifteen actually on equipment. But the rest of it was logistics and buying stuff and getting in and out. Uh, so it was wow. a you know a reasonable uh, punt, but because it's something I was planning on you know doing a career change into, it, it was worth it. And I didn't do a film school, um, part, so that was also creatively deliberate. And I didn't want to learn the rules because you know having having been a pilot and done other jobs. You you have to think a certain way, but it's just nice to be able to break free, and you're you going to be more original if you don't have that input from other people. Obviously, you you lose out collaboratively because you don't have other people's input. But um, yeah, I deliberately avoid formal training, and then the money that I didn't have to spend on formal training, I could spend on the film as well. I mean, that's something we've mentioned on the podcast
1: a few times: is that you know the money you could save from film school you can make a feature film for and you've done exactly that what i really liked about it as well is the fact that you you got these beautiful angles of stuff where because you're the lead in it you're the narrator of the story and it's about you and your journey and to do this on your own is really difficult to go okay well if i walk along here there's a nice shadow on the far canyon of me so if i then put the camera here that will get that okay so if i walk back and just walk across and that i'm like my God, you must have spent, I mean, you must have been able to do this trip in, you you did it in 30 days. I I imagine you probably could have done it in maybe 10 to 15. Oh, definitely. I I,
2: I chose something that um, I could spend half my space mentally and physically on the filming. Uh, So, yes, I could have done twice as much if I wasn't filming. Yeah, yeah. But those kinds of things, like, so that shot, uh, you know, in the years leading up to it, every time I'd watch anything on TV, when a certain shot came into my Imagination or watching, just copying someone else's kind of shot. I just in my iPhone write a list, so I had this massive list of of shots that might work in certain situations. So you know, I'd have it under a heading of uh, raft anchoring uh, at sunset. You know, have a massive list of shots. So when I'd I'd come across some situation. And I'm like, okay, I'm in this one, and I'd go to my list of stuff and go, oh, don't forget to get a shot of this. And because your brain's particularly not functioning well because of lack of food and water, that was really helpful. And so I definitely thought to myself and had it written down that, yeah, if I if if I find a nice shadow on a wall, then let's try and include that. So that wasn't, I didn't refer to my list for that, but because I'd gone through that process beforehand, those situations stuck out, and I never would have thought of it if I hadn't thought about it, you know, a year before and when I was thinking about what might
1: look good. It's so inspiring for filmmakers out there. It's like, look, don't just go out on a whim. You've got to really plan this stuff. And, you know, I'm all for go make your film. Go do it. But plan it. If you don't plan it, you wouldn't have got any of those shots. You'd have just been you and your GoPro or your what, – what camera are you using most of the time um, for speaking into – Yeah, it was, the, a,
2: it was a Sony AX53, which is a yeah. really a consumer-level handy cam.
1: Yeah, it's kind of blogger's cam, isn't it? A video blogger's cam. Um, yeah, effectively, and, yeah. And, and, and I great. had lots
2: of anguish about that because
1: I wanted it, the
2: possibility that it could turn into a you know a TV program. I never yeah. even thought of it would end up as a, a film because, you know, I still hadn't really defined in my mind what a film was, but I was thinking more like a TV series or something. But mm. I Googled the hell out of what's the minimum requirements for broadcast production, blah, blah, and – nothing really concrete comes out as far as specs go and people would write reviews and, you know, the camera I had, you know, three levels up, you know, was apparently the minimum for filming religious, you know, church ceremonies or something like that. <laughs> so when when it, the film ended up, you know, being offered a distribution deal and I was going through the whole QC deliverables process, I was always waiting for that, you know, that, that awkward phone call, you know, oh, sorry, but, um, you know, you didn't use this specification so it's, none of it's usable. And it sort of goes to show that um, it's not really – you can just get away so much these days with modern equipment that's relatively cheap. And um, the rest of the – I guess maybe the filming community hasn't become aware of that because, of course, you wouldn't choose that kind of camera um, normally. But because I have to have it because it's small and I'm carrying it and I'm also carrying the batteries and the solar panels to charge it, you you can actually get away with it. And certainly I wouldn't choose to if I was doing a a more standard filming thing. But – It's amazing
1: that you can get away with it. It really is. So let's talk about the the charging side of that because the battery issue, the card issues. You you mentioned there about a solar panel on the (laughs) back of your rucksack. So just to picture the image, everyone, is Mike is in the outback, in the middle of nowhere with no way of communication. And he's got his camera, he's got his drone and he's got uh, expedition stuff from the past in his rucksack, as well as the clothes he needs, even though it's very little clothes you need, sometimes none at all, um, is uh, you've got a solar panel on your back. And this is genius because now you're able to charge your batteries as you go. How did you even think to do this? I mean, obviously you couldn't do it without, but yeah, it's clever.
2: Well, I had to have, well, when I was on the raft, I had a much larger solar panel that folds out the size of, you know, a large beach tower. So that was a 100 watt solar panel and that was charging a half sized car battery and because drones are very thirsty on battery. And, and I had a laptop, a MacBook Pro, and that goes through a massive amount of power as well because I was reviewing footage and saving it onto spinning disk hard drives every night. So that just chewed a massive amount of power.
1: So you were doing that every night as you went because I didn't see any of that in the film. So you were sat there looking through your footage uh, and downloading your footage onto a hard drive, I imagine. Yes. And yeah. Then, and it, and no. all of it was
2: on one spinning disk hard drive too, which was just an oh incredible gosh. risk, you know. And oh, wow. About, that's a huge risk. It took me risk. two weeks after I got out of there to finally put another another drive. And I was just like, oh, never take this risk again because, you know, you just no, drop one if of you, those things.
1: If you totally, that gone down a creek or a crocodile <laughs> had got it or, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, it's yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. My gosh. And that's huge less. I've lost drives before and it's just, it, your your heart sinks. You cannot sink. There's it's, there's nothing to compare that to. So, please back up your drives, everyone. This uh, is yeah. a lesson. <laughs> but then you would have had an extra drive. Did you have the other drives with you? you just hadn't backed it up.
2: No, I I, I bought two no. drives, and right. I thought that I just I never never really thought of doing it as redundancy. I just ran out of room on one drive. I had a one terabyte <laughs> and a two terabyte. That's
1: carabyte. still really little. I know you're using you you're not using 4k footage but even so oh, that's yeah well it uh, was yeah. actually
2: 4k and uh, you were, right i yeah, don't know it how was you 4K didn't it 4K until the middle of the expedition right. when i uh, the camera was on a tripod and i slipped walking down a hill and the bottom of the tripod smashed into the ground really hard and the, the, when i went to turn the camera on the next time i just uh, it would turn on but whenever i hit the record button i'd get the red screen of death and fuzzy lines and it would shut down oh and i just screwing my head off swearing in the bush for two hours just ah you know because i knew that yeah. that was going to be the end of any chance of a decent production and i managed yeah. to get it going again after hours in us in us in hd only so that's why the the film is released in hd where it could have been 4k which is a real shame wow. because um you know half the film and all the drone shots are 4k but i had to downgrade it to 1080 uh for, for the overall export if i had a regret uh that it's not uh, you really need a backup primary camera, and yeah. I'll certainly be doing that on future expeditions. Yeah,
1: something you've learned from massively, and it's like you say, this is what filmmaking is about. Is it when you make mistakes, they're not mistakes. It's just learning for next time, right? You know, it's, yeah, that's that's where you've got to think of it because uh, yeah. otherwise you go down the rabbit hole of I'm always making mistakes. Well, no, we're just learning. Exactly. And and it it was
2: cost as well. Like I didn't want to have to fork out for another camera. And you're already, you know, I've got a family. You don't want to, it's hard to justify spending so much money. You've got
1: two kids (laughs) and a wife. Yeah. You can't be like, I'll just get another one just in case I break it. They're really expensive. Plus it's the weight on your, you know, in your backpack anyway, which is already really heavy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, a drone is heavy. You know, you've got to take a drone everywhere, take a camera everywhere, take your batteries, take your, uh, your laptop. Already I'm going, my back's already going, oh my gosh, let alone, you know, you're trekking through the outback with expedition stuff in there as well and survival gear.
2: When I did the hiking phase, (laughs) I definitely consolidated that stuff and only took the the bare essentials. So the smaller, that smaller 17 watt panel was enough that I could charge my standard camera gear and maybe half a drone battery. And and I couldn't afford to review the footage at all after that at night. Whereas the other bigger solar panel was enough to really meet most of my needs. But the footage review was was very important because it, it let you know what was working. So I was, I was learning as I went, obviously, and then finding out, like, oh, that sound sounds terrible, why is that, and then not repeat that error. Whereas if I hadn't reviewed it all, I could have found myself coming back at the end and just finding one whole camera unusable or and not getting the most out of certain shots like certain modes in my drone, maybe the yaw rate was too high. You know, you're just constantly mm-hmm. debriefing and learning as you go. So it would take three hours probably every night, to, to download and review all the footage. And, and you're really tired at that stage as well, but it is definitely yeah. necessary.
1: And how did you learn to sort of expose everything? Obviously you've got your photographic background, but that's not your background when you're also in the film as well, you know, it's, it's very Yeah, difficult.
2: well, a lesson I learned a long time ago in helicopters was it's usually much safer to go auto. So I deliberately had everything it, pretty much in auto other than my time-lapse and star-lapse f- photography I was uh, going manual for that, but for example, I had an opportunity once in a helicopter to pretty much take it wherever I wanted, and I just took the most amazing photos I ever would have taken. And then I got back and I I'd tried to be smart and I'd um restricted the shutter speed to a thousandth, and there wasn't enough light, and it was all underexposed. And but because these cameras, the auto is, you know, no one no one complained on any anyone that's seen it. It's been shown around the world in the Bant Film Festival and no one ever made any complaints about exposure or anything and obviously with other stuff that i'm doing now i'm I'm going to go more into manual particularly with iso setting i've just put an a7s2 for for the next yeah, film nice. that i make yeah so i can really handle a low light and i've been practicing that and it's amazing what you can do there but you have to be very careful because when you're on the other side of the camera you can't monitor it and i am yeah, exactly changing yeah. life-threatening situations mm-hmm. i i could very easily find myself if i put it in a manual mode not having time to revisit my camera settings and finding that 80% of this dynamic situation, which is the crux of the whole film, is now not usable. So when in doubt, I have to stick in
1: auto and only go manual when I know I can control it. And like you say, it, because it's a documentary and it's a documentary style and feel, it, you totally buy it. It's not an issue. But autos, you're right. When you're doing it that way, well, stick it on auto. It's all right. As, yeah. you know, As long as... And it picks the, up, it's in focus the, because I'm
2: busy in these shots and I'm trying to steer her off with one foot and 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 the angle of the sunlight's constantly changing because a drone that's doing an orbit is you know you can't you can't be changing exposure all the way around everything's changing uh, so it's it's more about broad brush techniques to still be able to get good footage if I if I lose a handle on the specifics of the of the camera settings
1: and with the drone as well where you put it it's got that lovely setting hasn't it which can uh lock on to where you are and then yeah. you can send it out anywhere and it'll stay on you and kind of follow you for a while did you yeah. use that quite a bit
2: that works on visual tracking so it got harder as i went along because my shirt got dirtier and dirtier and i started looking like the surrounding So but it often it would start to drop lock on me but the, the newer version is a lot more <laughs> reliable with the with the locking of it
1: 28 days in uh you can't <laughs> see me anymore i am literally bush tucker i am part of the rock I- <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is one of the, uh, one of my clothing selections was based on visual tracking. So I, right. I definitely, I chose light blue because it, it had some contrast, but yeah, it just ended up being light brown after a while.
1: I love the fact that you've even thought about what colors to wear, you know, you've thought about how the camera's going to track you. How's, and this was without any formal training. And this is, like I say, so inspiring for people out there to go, hang on a minute, if Mike can do this and, you know, he's a pilot and he's learned to do this on his own. Why aren't I doing it now? And I've been a filmmaker, and I made shorts, and I've done this and that and the other. Why aren't I going and making my feature film? Uh, I know you didn't expect the outcome, maybe you, that you've got from this, but at the same time, you planned it and you've done it properly, and it's proved that it's done really well. Yeah, oh, it's, of it's, that. it's a
2: lot. Yeah, it's more than I ever would have imagined out of it. Actually, yeah, yeah. But I was also <laughs> lucky though. that A lot of those things, like like the visual tracking thing that is mm. like my, my past job so like you know I've been flying around helicopters um, looking at flare images and and all those so those technical sides of it um, electro optics work in well with with camera gear but also the mission planning side and and being able to visualize in advance what is going to happen and what the risks are to not only safety but risks of it going wrong and then mitigating uh, ways around the the problems that might arise you know when you have that weird technical question in your head you can type it into google and half the time the question's pre-filled for you and some guys made a video about it so mm-hmm. you know it's never been easier to make a, a film it really is
1: <laughs> there's, no, there's no excuses now really I, I, yeah. I totally agree with that there is no excuses let's talk about the money then because obviously this is you know it's, it's you've got to spend money on camera equipment and stuff Do you just sort of over time it's because it's something you really want to do sort of built that up did you have any uh help in any way did you do a crowdfunder did you, no, uh, you know, I I didn't no, no. I didn't
2: crowdfund I I might for the next one I'm not quite sure but okay. I I basically thought okay I'm going to do it on this date and I ended up delaying it for a year because the drone laws in Australia were much more restrictive so I had to wait a year for the drone rules to change and uh, that that made a big difference, but I knew that I would have to get good at drone stuff, so I'd, I gave myself a couple of years to get good at it and that was
0: mm-hmm.
2: quite difficult to get good at because um, I live in a place where you're not supposed to have drones
1: and <laughs> it's, it's difficult. Um, so you got um, good at low drone flying.
2: Uh,
1: yes, yes. <laughs> in so, a yeah, small space.
2: It's difficult, uh, but I also knew I had to be good enough with it that I could handle handle flying it and get good shots in a, in a difficult situation as well, but I basically spent a lot of time selecting the right equipment. And one of the drones, the first one I bought ended up being a bit of a lemon. And luckily I got onto these other drones that are really reliable. But same with the camera gear, just a lot of a lot of research. And so yeah with when you fork it all out for yourself you just really have to boil it down to what you you must have. Since that last film there's so many cool new things out that are amazing.
1: Yeah that's the thing with technology is the fact that you've bought these now and you go ah right something else new's just come out and it's even better and it's even better and it does cost and these costs add up. But I imagine after this film, it should be a lot easier or easier for you to maybe get some funding and maybe go, look, let's do this as part of, I know you took some photos for, was it the National Geographical? Yeah, National Geographic magazine, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So maybe this, that that can be tied in next time to help you out, you know, if, especially making, you know, a big film like this, which is just beautiful. And you, we, I was seeing things I thought I'd never see, you know, places I'd never get to go to. And it is wonderful you've captured that on film. and. Tell us about how you managed to do that because you had to get special permission from the Aboriginals. Yeah, that's right.
2: So you need special permission to go into those areas and there is a lot of sensitivities around Aboriginal people and what they do and don't want filmed. So Mm. uh, I've had a fair bit of experience with that over the years doing private expeditions on their land and also stuff with the military and I basically got a, a lot of my survival knowledge from Aboriginal people who were very generous in sharing it. So... I, when I when I gave them, I, I called them up out of the blue and told them what I was thinking of doing. And like most of my expeditions, people are trying to figure out first of all whether I'm serious, and then whether <laughs> they should really let some crackpot because they're worried about liability. And so, yeah. you know, their their lawyers are like, oh, you know, if this guy hurts himself, we're going to be responsible to to save him, and and that's a bad look. So I went over there. They asked me to visit, um, so I went and visited them, and they sort of understood that. I was experienced enough and they thought I was crazy, but they're happy for me to do it. And then I also was very concerned that I, I didn't want to disrespect them in any way um, because mm. they are, are already disrespected in so many ways in Australia. And so I wanted it to be something that they were happy with. And so I showed them the footage afterwards and took quite a while f- because in, in Aboriginal communities, It's not centralised. People are living all over the place, so they have meetings uh, every few months, and it's difficult for them to make a decision without everybody in the community being involved. So that process took a long time, and I was getting a lot of pressure from news agencies and stuff because the media was covering it to release stuff, and I was kept on going, "No, sorry, I'm just going to have to wait till they come back and say they're happy with it." And um, but they did. They looked at the footage, and there wasn't any sacred areas that were being um, you know, showing that they didn't want to see and they had some good advice okay. about stuff they're concerned about their really beautiful areas being trampled and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So that was another message that I was glad to be able to put out there. And that's another good thing about makes completely self-funding it. There's no other stakeholders that have their finger in the pie and can tell me what I can and can't say. So yeah. I, can, I can say controversial things and not have to get approval from anybody. And that's, that's one of the most attractive things about being a filmmaker, really. Um, yeah, so when you're paying the bills, you have that luxury. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true, though you then have too many choices, and this is something I wanted to talk about in the edit, because you must have had so many options, so many choices of where to go, how to start the story, how to end it, how to, even though I suppose you might've had the arc massively planned out, you had so much footage. So yeah. it's choosing that. So let's talk about the edit, because again, you've edited the film, Having not edited a film before that's right uh, yeah how, how did you go so about I'd, it i well, I'd, I'd, I'd learned the nuts
2: and bolts of editing in Premiere sure. Pro, so, and I'd yeah. made a few clips to music and you know I could cut to music and do nice transitions and stuff, but the actual more important yeah. creative making of a story I hadn't mm. got through, so I found myself after six months i'd really got down in a chronological order an interesting. Selection of clips, but it really wasn't progressing beyond that, and I knew it. And I was like, right, well, I have, to... and I went through this really difficult creative churning process in in my head for like two months. It was this really stressful feeling because I knew that if I didn't get over this barrier, it would just stay a collection of interesting clips for you know yeah. survival nerds might be slightly interested in. And mm-hmm. so I basically had to go back and imagine because I'd written articles about adventures for for magazines before. And I basically okay. had to go, right, I just go back and imagine that I'm writing an article, a long article, so it needs a conclusion, a middle and end, and maybe that's the basis for the voiceover. And so I wrote an article effectively in my head of of how it should sound. And then music is really important as well. So then I looked at sections of what I'd written and what's the emotion of that section And then I found music mostly through Artlist.io, which I'm guessing you probably heard of, which matched that emotion. And then I would fit that footage back into that musical clip. So it's a constant backwards and forwards process. I guess if you had Mm -hmm. a score and a budget, you might be able to fit the music around the words maybe, but I didn't have that luxury. Picking the emotion of what the story was and having fitting music was probably the main thing that I think... It keeps it coherent anyway from a perspective, but it also limits how much you can fit in a song, which is also good because you have to get out of a sequence before you can stay too long into it. So it keeps it moving. I didn't want anyone thinking, "Oh, this is going on a bit long." So that's why I right. sort of kept it under an hour, and I was trying to make it appeal to a general audience, not survival
1: nuts. So that, but again, that's just you thinking. That was there any? processes where you you showed it to someone and they said yeah trim that bit down or that you know there's too much here or was uh, it just you on your own
2: deciding? it was uh, it was it was me on my own but um I, I watched it a million times obviously as you do and mm. then when I had it at a stage I think I'm 95% there I live in a sort of community where there's 1200 people so I put the word out there and there's a bit of a theaterette so I got about 80 to 100 people to come in and watch it and okay. I had you know, I gave everyone a pen and a paper, and when it was a- afterwards, I asked them very specific questions that I'd pre-prepared, and then just you know, any free questions was you know, did it go too long? Did it whatever those kinds of questions? And basically, there wasn't any of that, uh, which was good, and I didn't, I wasn't expecting too much of it. Although now that I've watched it so many times, I think I could shorten it in some areas and lengthen it in others. But sure. I got some great feedback from those people and other people. Well, the main feedback out of that was we wanted more historical context and what happened to the aviators and but some other people were really helpful and said "Oh, this bit of voiceover at this time was a little bit garbled you could make it clearer so that was my my test screening effectively was a very useful process to go through
1: really is i think yeah test screening is really important sometimes it's very hard they cost money uh you've got to find the place you've got to set it up you've got to find a screen and get people there can be very difficult but uh, like say it's having a good community around you you just need it all those voices You obviously can't listen to them all, but you've got to listen to the ones that make sense to you. And you did some really lovely little edits and lovely little moments with, there was an original photo of one of the aviators and you matched that almost exactly of you uh, in the same spot doing the same sort of thing. And I was like, what? What? I mean, that must have taken you, there was no one looking at the camera going, yeah, you're just in the wrong place. Just move a little bit to your left. Uh,
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> It was basically, I took a wide right. shot and then I reframed and rotated it. So it was
1: like, that was always, always my best. intention. So right. yeah, it, took, it took a while to get it that way. And, yeah, it's incredible. Were... All these little things are just incredible. When everyone watches the film, uh, who's listening to this, it's just delightful. It's a delightful film and it's delightful to watch all these little touches that you've set this could have just been a normal documentary, I say normal in that sense of the word, of you going out, yeah, I'm in the bush I'm doing this, and you've elevated it so much by clever camera work, by planning your shots and just being excited about the the, the subject that you're actually portraying, and I think that is what's really, that's why this is done so well, and that's why you're going to carry on making a lot of good films like this, because you've really put your heart and soul into it, and it comes across, and it's vital. It really is. Um, let's just jump jump back a tiny bit onto your sort of survival skills. So a lot of people out there will be going, hang on a minute. It's all well and good saying, let me just go out and film, a, you know, in the outback. But obviously these survival skills you had, and you do talk about them in the film. Tell us a bit about your history of understanding the outback and knowing when a crocodile is going to strike or how yeah, he's sure. supposed to eat dog balls, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> and yeah. there is a thing called dog balls that he does eat in the film <laughs> and they're not what you think.
2: Because I watched this show, The Bush Tucker Man, uh, I was always yeah. into bush food. So, that you know, instead of being into the standard stuff that guys are often into, I was researching bush tucker books and learning scientific names of plants and stuff. And so that was, was from a
1: very young age you were doing that?
2: Yeah, yeah. I must have been wow. about... 10 or something when um, when this show first came out and then in the military i did lots of sort of pretty adventurous things as a kid i always knew that because i wanted to make shows about survival i needed to get some credibility so that's why i went to such an extent to get on these courses and it's not normal for a helicopter pilot to be a survival instructor in a unit that wasn't even part of my own unit so i, I spent a lot of effort getting onto those and mm-hmm. so that that unit is made up of predominantly aboriginal people and they give their skills and knowledge back to um, non-Aboriginal people who also instruct on their courses. So that's how I knew what you could and couldn't eat. And there's no one else, I don't think, in Australia that that um, does survival training as well as these people because they get it directly from Aboriginal people. Right. So, yeah, th- I was pretty lucky there. And so Australia is my backyard as far as survival goes. But I've also done plenty overseas as well. So I'm certainly not limited to doing it just in the, in Australia, but I might as well start there because there's so many interesting places in Australia. And being a pilot, I've flown all over it, like I've flown the entire circumference of Australia, most of it at low level in military aircraft, always with my head out the door just going, oh, because I'm just excited by landscapes anyway. So yeah. I've got these maps in my head. I know which places are beautiful, which ones aren't. So I've done a, a record of the entire country uh, already. Incredible. which Most people don't have that that background. So I just know yeah, where, I just know where it, the really nice
1: way. spots are. Yeah. That's incredible because you've also, you know, you've snow survival instructor. You, you've been to Antarctica and, you know, survival there and surviving 50, 50 degree heat in Saudi Arabia. So you know how to survive in extreme places. So yeah, yeah. I, I can't wait to see your next one in terms of, you know. I've actually done
2: another one in somewhere in the Middle East. I owned two camels and I spent um, wow. nine days out in the desert living like a Bedouin. This was after the Kimberley one. So I had the experience oh, wow. of that f- filmmaking stuff. Uh, it was extremely yeah. difficult because my camels, I trained them myself and I didn't have enough time and they got injured during the training and some very, very difficult things happened. But I didn't get enough coverage on that film because the chemical, the camels were so difficult. But there's right. enough that it will add really nicely to a, an Australian film about camels because I want to catch some wild camels and do an expedition in a desert there. Because this has got distribution, uh, mm-hmm. I'll probably end up, having well, this film completely paid off whereas I, I wasn't expecting that to happen and I've been also be able to I've also put money back into the uh, Aboriginal community and the, put a plaque up or it's been put up as we speak really on on this lookout that overlooks the land where that rescue took place and you know just as a thank you to the Aboriginal people up there because you know they don't get uh, the respect that they deserve in, in many ways. And people don't know about these stories, and they mm. they should.
1: That's so great. What I love here, and let me just get it correct, is the money you've made or any money that you've received from the films you've made so far, you've either put back into your next film and getting more equipment, uh, planning stage, or you've helped the Aboriginals out in, because they helped you out. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah. That's so I was actually lovely. surprised that's, as well because
2: the when I when I made the film I didn't at this stage I, I didn't uh, know where it was going to go so I thought oh well I'll just go to Australia and and uh, show it to the Aboriginal communities for free and because that flight went yeah. through Darwin which is the capital of you know the northern Australia I just took a punt and thought oh well I might I'm gonna hire out a cinema and just show it there and so I did that and it was a it was a yeah. complete sellout. Audience, and wow. it, it was amazing. And then I did another one in Broome that was part of a film festival, but they yeah. they ended up paying me a, a door thing. So I basically made about four thousand bucks out of each of those two screenings. Wow! Which from wow. a wow. you know from a
1: yeah,
2: it's actually a, a tour, a touring roadshow is a good way to to get money back on the film. And so all that money is going towards this plaque, or it's already gone into it. But for future films, uh, I'll probably do the next one on the Barrier Reef after the film, and there'll be a lot of news coverage as I do it. I'll basically tour the whole Queensland coast, doing a tour with with the canoe that I this outrigger canoe that I'm going to make, and so I'll yeah. just do escorted roadshow tours. Uh, which is oh, a, a dif- different way of marketing it
1: I mean that's an interesting story any newsletters are going to go or oh, let's talk about that uh, you know newspapers in the local area radio are going to want to say hang on you got here by canoe and it, it's really interesting stories which helps you know get people bums on seats and I definitely think people should tour I know a lot of friends Fizz and Ginger with their film The Isle have just done that uh, Dom, Lemoir Matt Hookings have just done that with uh, Winter Ridge and I Love My Mum and I think it's really important to do that with those films. All those films are available now by the way and they've all been on the podcast if you want to listen to those. Uh, people talk about how they made their films and th- I think that's really important to go on to do those cinema runs. People always wait for the distributors or sales agents to do it but actually you can do it yourself and you can potentially make a bit of money back as well. Let's talk about The Crocodiles for a second then because Obviously, there's, you you film a lot of crocodiles. Was there really points where a crocodile could have literally eaten you or attacked?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, anytime you're on the raft, that can happen. But if you're standing in an aggressive stance with a pole, it'll it's much less likely to have a go. So yeah, I've had a lot of experience with them, and and I th- what's going to kill you up there is being complacent. So um, I deliberately maintain my fear. Uh, but also the wonder because they're amazing animals when you when you see them the colors on, mm. on the scales and their skin like it's sort of like they they're a bit like the Tabasco sauce on a bland on a bland meal you know like they just provide <laughs> yeah. the spice but it's uh, yeah yeah great way of describing it I know yeah. it would be awesome for coverage you know for media coverage if I could have a shot of a crocodile almost biting my leg off but of course. I, I, I yeah. wanted to see if I have a future, a long-term career in filmmaking where I don't need that sensationalism. So I never got <laughs> a shot like that, but no, was, I was sort of, in a way, hoping that it, it would be successful without having to have
1: that. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But at first, you were kind of dangling the leg in a bit longer. <laughs> just go on, then go on. I've got cameras set up. Go on, dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dicing sure. with death, though. To be fair, you were dicing with death throughout the whole film, anyway, with whether you get water or not, whether you could eat, um, and it's just fascinating to watch fascinating um let's talk about sound real quick you just took the sound from the camera mic top right because i was wondering at one point i thought why well, it sounds really good he's got really good sound and then i thought but he hasn't got a mic on and he can't
2: yeah, i had i had a, a radio a senhauser radio lapel mic which i used for certain yes, shots did. Uh, right, yeah but okay. mo- most of the time it was yeah sort of run and gun literally off the microphone on the top of the camera i knew sound was very important so i did put a lot of effort into it Um, probably the biggest thing i did sound wise which i know for next time was i thought that it would be watched on people's mobile phones on youtube so i balanced the sound of the film to i was aiming for about 16 lkfs which from my youtube research told me that that was the best way of setting the sound but uh when i sent the sound off to in the deliverables process they're like yeah thanks for the draft sound but can you send through the final stuff please i'm so like "Uh." sorry Uh that was the that was the final and so when i looked at what they did to the sound they reduced it a lot compared to what i'd done but next time i can just change that from the beginning i I know how how to set it up and i was very undisciplined in how i set my sequences up you know I, i wasn't disciplined about having all my voiceover on one line and you know, native sound on this line and music on the other. So everything was just a mishmash everywhere. So, mm. um, I'll, yeah. And also mm. I didn't have a, a post facility go over and do all the sound, whereas now I'll probably, you know, I've got confidence that I'll be able to get distrib- distribution on the next film. So I'll, I'm happy to go and spend money because I know that I'll be, it'll be worth it in, in the long run. It, yeah, Let's
1: talk about deliverables a minute because – were you expecting the amount of deliverables? <laughs> no, so I thought, I thought.
2: I um, thought. I think we they they, off, they made the offer. In, well, first of all, because this is interesting for people who are trying to get their film distributed. I, I actually heard about. I think it was on your podcast. You had a guy on that had made a film in the UK. Found that most of the doors were closed in the UK. Went to Cannes. Found a few more doors opening, but still fairly closed. But it wasn't until he went to the states and started ambushing CEOs. Uh, he just found a different sort of environment there and they're much more open and keen to look for the next thing and he got much better offers and he took one from Gravitas Ventures so I used his experience and just went straight to them and on their website it's one of those pre-filled messages and you put your info in add your file and hit send and I thought oh man I'm never gonna hear anything again and (laughs) and then two months later I just got an email out of the blue and saying oh yeah you know give us a call and uh, so you know they offered it there on the spot so I was I was absolutely stoked. And they were talking about, oh, we'll release it you know, in, on this date. It was like six months away. And I was like, oh, what are you, I'm happy if you release it next month. And they're like, oh, no, you've got to go through – you know the process takes a while so i had it in my mind that i would basically just you know youtube a few export settings in premiere and
1: two days later sure. i have <laughs> sure. there you go there's the film but no <laughs> yeah, what did so they six ask six months for?
2: later i'm, I'm still cool. there doing all the deliverable stuff which is amazing the amount of stuff yeah, what did, how,
1: well how much stuff did you have to do just let our listeners know exactly just a quick rundown
2: yeah well it's well they send you the pages of, of the stuff that you have to do so uh well, I mean, if you just look at the audio, for example, you need to separate every single line of audio, send it separately, which it shouldn't separate be that stems, hard. But when you've yeah. had no discipline like I did and mixed it all throughout the sequences, that process took a <sighs> long God. time. Yeah,
1: you've, yeah, that takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But things like you have to send through a description of every single shot, what was said in the shot. And mm-hmm. uh, everything that the, the in and out of every shot, and then a separate document with every word that was spoken on the shot, and then an export with all of the, a full export of everything, and then an export without any text on it, so they can make it in subtitles. And I, oh, and the stills and oh, it's hard to remember it all, but it took months and months of of work, all based around another full time job, of course, as well. Yeah of course it's it's really Uh, demanding and takes a long time yeah
1: (laughs) it does and it's really it's something filmmakers do forget when they get that distribution side if you're going out there to make a film for the first time or you've had a studio do it for you or someone else do it for you when you're doing it on your own those deliverables are huge i mean the the rewards are massive because you then own the film and it's yours you know all the revenue coming back or which you can put into another film comes to you so there is that that's the benefit but Just be aware, deliverables are like the fourth part of making your film. and it's just as hard as production and and you could export parts of it. Like
2: you could export the 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 subtitle bit where you write all the words out. And I think you know it's about one thousand to fifteen hundred bucks. Whereas I just did the three days work myself, and then you learn about how to do it. And once again, it's it's film school. So maybe if I start making reasonable money in future, I might outsource that. But at least I know. Uh, how to be good at, <laughs> at least I'll understand all the steps in the process.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You know what goes into it. Yeah. So you could do a bit of it or, or share that with someone else. Um, absolutely. Uh, Mike, this has been honestly incredible. Um, if you could give some advice from what you've learned from going out and making a film on your own with no crew to a filmmaker out there, what would it be? Uh,
2: it's well, certainly possible. And it's possible to do it on relatively when i say relatively equipment like a camera that costs a thousand bucks or probably i don't know 600 pounds you can you can do it on a camera like that and you can pretty much do all the steps all the way through to deliverables completely by yourself provided you're willing to put in the time (laughs) to do it and uh, take the risk basically and obviously i was um i was happy that if nothing came of it i still would have been happy that i had a cool expedition and Obviously, you know you don't have to have a film that's based on an expedition. Just that that process is something that you'll have forever, and uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's definitely worth the effort.
1: I think it's an inspiration, and you thank you for so much of your your story there and your knowledge. It's been really wonderful to hear, and you know, I do expect big things. I can't wait to get you on after the next one. Um, thanks, where can people follow you online? Where can people find you in the film and stuff like that?
2: Sure, they can go to outbackmike.com.au. They can search for Surviving the Outback film and that will take you to iTunes, Google Play, any of those different platforms where it's available. And I'm on Facebook as Outback Mike. Instagram, I think I'm Outback underscore Mike. Yeah, so I've got other expeditions and I just put some stuff up from a Tahiti camera testing trip, which I did. And yeah, so they can follow me in all those places. Yeah. And, thanks, and I just want to say thanks for your podcast because it's the same. Often, like, I look at the subject heading of the podcast and it might be visual effects, which really doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing. But I go, oh, well, I'll listen anyway. And then I find out all these tidbits about distribution and stuff. So it's a really fantastic way of, of getting info. Um, by doing what you're doing, I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks. My absolute pleasure. And it's one of the reasons why I do it is to inspire someone like yourself and, and others to go out there and make their films. And I was overjoyed when I heard that, you know, in some way we helped you um, to go out there and make your film and, you know, that's what it's all about you know helping each other and getting by and as a community the indie film is quite small the indie film world uh, and we can all help each other you know uh, it's, it's easier now there's podcasts and YouTube and stuff like that um, but we're a sounding board and we are here and that's that's the aim so I, I'm over, the moon. I'm over <laughs> that, the moon that was another
2: word I had to Google was indie because I thought indie film was some, a film inspired by Indiana Jones
1: if only I'd have made a lot of Indiana Jones films now <laughs> i love that that's great oh man um brilliant brilliant stuff good all right well thank you so much mike for your for your time really really appreciate it um A lot, and thank you for your knowledge. Uh, you can follow me at uh, Giles Alderson. You can follow the podcast at Filmmakers Pod. Go back and listen to our uh, previous episodes, as Mike said, where you can learn loads of bits and pieces and tidbits about how you can make your film. There's big actors in there like Mark Strong. There's brilliant producers, Ian Sharp, uh, Fizz and Ginger. There's many, many, many directors, including um, Neil Marshall. There's, there's I think there's 118 before this one now, so there's a lot out there. Um, I might have be been 119. I can't remember. We've got some great guests coming up, including the editor of Star Wars uh, Rogue One. And it looks like we have David Coop, the screenwriter of Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah, I'm dropping that. That'll be in a couple of months. But that looks like it's all happening and coming up for you. So stay tuned to the Filmmakers Podcast. Remember, if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it's your duty to send that elevator back down. Until next Tuesday, go out there and make your film. Mike, thank you so much. No worries. Thank you, Giles. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Take care, everyone, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye.